what you don't understand about being black or being gay or being, you know, Latino or Muslim is you're always reminded of it. So if you're white, you can just go through life and be white. But if you're a different group, something is always reminding you. The president says something or there's something on the news or somebody goes to a mosque and shoots up the place. All those things remind you, oh, you're not like everybody else, even though you are. But when I surf, I can just sit there and I know I'm black and I can tell by some of the stairs, people are going, oh, look, a black woman. But I can just sit there and shut down for a bit. That's nice. I'm Maya Deary. In a 1970 interview with the late, great Nina Simone, the interviewer asks what freedom is. Simone says, I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear, like a new way of seeing. Now this Waves to Wisdom interview was recorded in the summer of 2019, and a lot has changed since my shared sessions with Surf Sister Mary, as she likes to be called. The day I'm recording this introduction happens to be June 19th, now that's an unintentional but welcome coincidence. For anybody who doesn't know, today's Juneteenth, a holiday that commemorates the day in 1865 when a Union general announced to the African Americans of Galveston, Texas, that they'd been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, which President Lincoln had signed two and a half years earlier. A word spread quickly among Texas's black population and previously enslaved people released themselves into the promise of freedom. But in so many ways, that promise was and still is delayed and just outright betrayed through a combination of legal and policy decisions, terror and violence, and all kinds of cultural currents and habits. But it feels to me like maybe just in the last few weeks, something changed. It started to feel like there might be hope, like there's reason to believe that the promise of an America of the people, by the people, and for the people might have some life left in it yet. That liberty and justice for all could be, after 400 years, a thing we on this land between two seas move towards together. In other words, it started to feel like white people are waking up to a world and to a beautiful possibility that's been right here all along. This episode was initially scheduled to come out in early March of 2020. But I decided to delay this season's podcast because it didn't seem quite right to be talking about all the benefits of surfing at the beginning of a global pandemic that was clearly going to reduce everybody's freedom of movement, including access to the beaches. And then came Ahmad Arbery, murdered while he was jogging. Breonna Taylor, murdered while she was sleeping. And George Floyd, murdered while he was pleading for air. The Black Lives Matter movement has garnered the attention it deserved all along, and we're in a time of what feels like long overdue national reckoning. Now, none of this, not pandemics, not police brutality, none of it came up when Surf System Mary and I shared some fabulous waves in Southern California. Now, as far as I know, we were thinking about what surfers think about, waves and rides and rides and maybe some more waves. But while thinking about harnessing the ocean's energy, we knew what feeling we were chasing. And although there's really no good word for it, perhaps the one that comes closest is freedom. Unlike early March, this seems like the perfect time to release Mary's voice into the world. What does surfing have to do with liberation? 
Well, Nina Simone's eloquence and evocation comes close to describing my experience as a surfer. Learning how to ride waves has been the most liberating, empowering, and transformative practice of my life. But anybody who's paying attention can't ignore the fact that African Americans are massively underrepresented in almost all of these transformative surf lineups in this country. The history of modern surfing is inextricably intertwined with the history of colonial exploitation, of the subjugation of Native people, and the systematic removal of African Americans from recreational access to water. In other words, when Surf System Mary sees surprise in the eyes of those who note, hey, there's a black woman, it's no surprise that it's a surprise. But so few of my fellow surfers perceive that fact as problem. I've long believed that I understand why some of the most violent and vitriolic white and police-instigated riots against African Americans during the civil rights movement of the 20th century happened during peaceful attempts to integrate beaches. Because if you want to keep people from loving one another, from coming to feel deeply tied to one another, from understanding how little separates us, and the powerful, intimate, intense connection that comes through shared, immersive joy, well, you better keep us from playing together in the water. For my part, I haven't pushed this issue as much as I could have, and let's face it, should have. Surfing is the most liberating, instructive, and deeply freeing practice I've ever experienced. As I've said many times in these interviews, it can dissolve artificial barriers in our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our lives. Now, I didn't learn to surf until I was 40. Brianna Taylor died when she was 26. It should go without saying, but saying is necessary and not nearly enough. Everyone, no matter how much melanin, should be free to live and breathe and learn to surf if she chooses to. It seems so straightforward, but that freedom might require a radical restructuring of lots of unseen, ignored forces and assumptions and habits that have allowed me and others like me to throw ourselves headlong into this deeply rewarding and creative endeavor without much thought for who's missing from the lineup. There's a contemporary painter named Derek Adams who's painted a series of portraits of black bodies at play in the water. Now, Adams notes that it's precisely when black bodies are shown or seen at leisure that white supremacy is most likely to rear its ugliest hydra heads. Adams believes that the black body, freely engaged in leisure, at play in the water, after and in spite of all the collective historical trauma, is a profoundly political and deeply radical portrayal. And in 1976 live concert recording, Nina Simone sings, I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Wish I could break all the things that bind us apart. Wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see, you'd agree, everybody should be free. Because if we ain't, then we're murderous. Welcome to Waves to Wisdom. Okay, you ready? Ready. Awesome. Okay, why don't we start if you are comfortable with it, by telling everybody your name, your age, and how long you've been surfing. I will tell you my surfing name. Surf Sister Mary. I'm 56. I just turned 56 last week, and I've been surfing 17 years. 
Fantastic. Okay. And we are uh, parked on the side of a, a windy road in San Clemente. And uh, we can see the Pacific from where we are. Yes. The sun is out. Gorgeous. So gorgeous. Uh, and will you uh, tell anybody who's listening a little bit about what we just did? We just had a really good session at San Onofre. I didn't think it would be good. I was thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to go. It's supposed to be windy. And then it was gray when we got here. It was raining on the way, but the waves were pretty darn good. <laughs> Holy cow, it was so fun. You know, I'm used to East Coast breaks and uh, we just don't have waves that go on and on like that. It was, there were such long rides. That's the best surf I've had in months. And uh, it's, you know, one of the things that's such a treat for me is seeing people like the, the woman we saw who must have been in her late 60s, who was just ripping. Which she's one? Just, the one with the, the white hair? Yes, or the, the one with the white hair, with I'm the thinking. Oh, okay. But there were a couple out there, weren't yeah. there? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, you live in Los Angeles. Yes. And, uh, and this was our second session this morning. We'd surfed earlier at, at one of your usual breaks, El Porto. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found you because of a blog that you wrote for several years. Right. Your blog is entitled Black People Don't Surf. That's the final name. The name alternated. Okay. Depending on my mood. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your moods and your uh, rotating blog names. Well, I like William Faulkner. So originally it was The Surf and the Fury. And then I get bored with that. And then I think I changed it to a different Faulkner title. I think he had a book called Light in August, and I changed it to Surf in August. But always people remark about me being black and surfing. And, you know, the stereotype is black people don't surf. So finally, at one point, I just changed it to that and left it. It, uh, it speaks quite eloquently, just, <laughs> just like it is, I think. <laughs> Uh, and you really, you chronicled your, your surfing adventures for, for several years mm -hmm. and almost session by session. What was the motivation to start a blog that you kept up for, for that long? Well, I like to write. At the time, I remember blogs were just starting and they were featuring them on Surfline. And I thought, I want to be featured on Surfline. So I started a blog and they did feature it on Surfline. And that was part of why I did it, because I wanted to be noticed for my writing. And I also have such a bad memory that I wanted to be able to look back and see what I did when I was surfing and learning to surf. And when I look at the blog now, I'll think, I don't remember that at all. It's good that you kept track yeah. that way. And, uh, and something that uh, you talked about earlier today, which I find so fascinating, is uh, that moment when you first decided to learn to surf and the fact that it coincided with another really important event in your life. Will you tell that story? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm laughing. <laughs> okay, I used to be a competitive cyclist, so part of my route, depending on where I was training, would be to just, you know, ride slowly down the bike path and enjoy the ocean. And one day I passed a table that had a brochure for a women's surf class. And I thought, huh, I've always liked surfing and I want to learn to surf and I finally know how to swim. So I stopped and got the brochure, but a little voice told me, you can't call them. Not yet. You know, I took the brochure home and was going to call them. The voice kept telling me, you, you can't, you can't surf yet. And it turns out I was pregnant fascinating yeah so I had to wait until I had the kid and then three months after I had him I started taking classes so let's just 
let me just pause for a second. So you had a three-month-old. You had yeah. just given birth to your one, and I believe only child. Well, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, to your son. And then you started to to surf. And was the class a good class? Did you feel like you became proficient as a result no, of not that? No, not at all. The class was good. I did not become proficient. It takes a while, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think it was mainly to get women in the water. It was run by Mary Setterholm. Okay. And she was a former U.S. surfing champ. And I think she was just trying to get women in the water. But I was not proficient. I was good at popping up. They told me that. Uh, did you fall in love with it right away? I think I fell in love with it when I was a kid. You did? Yeah. I wanted to surf since I was little. And talk a little bit about that. Where did you first see surfing? ABC's Wide World of Sports. I think it was, was it in black and white? No, it was probably in color by that time. But I remember having a crush on Sean Thompson. South Africa. Oh, my God. And I met him, and he kissed me on the mouth, and did I almost really? died. Yes, wow. he did. <laughs> But ever since then, I kept thinking, I want to surf, but I'm a, you know, I'm a black kid with straightened hair, and I don't know how to swim. So I didn't think it would ever happen. But then I grew up, cut off all my hair, learned how to swim, and it was time to learn how to surf. It happened. Yeah. So you saw surfing on Wide World of Sports. Mm -hmm. Did, uh, were you tempted to learn then? Was there no, any? No, I you couldn't weren't. swim. You couldn't swim. And I Black people surfing, that's not going to happen. That's not a thing. I mean, I was little, probably 10, Yeah. maybe. So it, mm -mm. So you saw surfing as a child. You really wanted to surf as an adult. You finally just happened upon this opportunity. Yes. At that point, you had learned how to swim? Yes. At 23, I decided, okay, I need to learn how to swim because I wanted to do triathlons. So I chopped off all my straightened hair. I was never into hair. I'm not into all that. All the trappings of what make you stereotypically attractive as a woman. I've always been athletic. And obviously, I've always been black. And black women are acculturated to straighten our hair. And then you're a slave to your hair. Because you don't want to get it wet. You don't want to do this. And now women wear weaves. But I always just wanted to go outside and play. So at 23, because I wanted to learn how to swim, I chopped off all that straightened hair and just had a short afro. And it's been on ever since. I have never straightened my hair again and never will. You don't miss it. Oh, no. no, no. Why would I? <laughs> no. I could go do whatever. I don't even look in the mirror, barely, because I don't wear makeup. And I don't do anything with my hair. I just get up, shake my dreadlocks, and I go. And you're ready. Yeah. Yeah. And my man loves it. So it's, what's the problem? Uh, well, it's pretty fabulous. The dreadlocks are pretty fabulous, I have to say. And <laughs> yeah. he said he likes that I don't wear makeup. Because, of course, then you spend all your time going, wait, I have to get ready. If he wants to go do something, I'm ready. You just go do something. Yeah, we yeah. just go. More freedom. If it rains, it rains. Part of, the, part of what I'm doing with this podcast is trying to share what I believe I've come across, which is this wisdom that surfers seem to me to accumulate from their embodied practice of immersing themselves in this more than human medium, in this dynamic mm -hmm. environment. What did surfing teach you as you were learning? As I was learning, I think it taught me some humility. I've never been stuck up, but I've always been a very good athlete. So whatever sport I turned to, I was good at. Boy, surfing was different. <laughs> 
So it teaches you patience. It teaches you humility. And it teaches you you're not in control. The ocean is in control. You can only control you, but you can't control that. I'm pointing at the ocean. <laughs> you can't control that at all. So at some point, you have to give yourself over to it. And you have to know when you can get in, and you also have to know when you can't. And I think a lot of people don't learn that. If the ocean's angry, you need to keep your little happy. Do we swear? Um, we can we can beep if it's. We, yeah. You need to keep your little happy butt on <laughs> land. A, yeah, yeah. That works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it really is. Um, and I don't know if this is true for you, but I tend to be a pretty anxious and controlling person at times, and so that as you say, giving yourself over to this powerful force, uh, that for me, I have to practice that over yeah. and over and over again. It's never something that I feel like, oh, well, I've got this now. I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, I need reminders all the time. <laughs> and surfing is so good at giving those reminders. I don't have that, though. And I think it may be because I'm black. I, there's so little I can control. Mm -hmm. I can't make people treat me equally and most people are nice to me so I'm not saying oh I get treated badly because I'm black I get treated very well because I'm me that's what I'm told As people say you have good attitude you have good energy so people are always nice to me but as a black person and as a black woman I feel like I don't control much of anything so surfing is just part of me going all right I, I can work within the structure I have but I try to control very few things. There are so many forces at play when you walk out of your door. How can you control any of it? You know, people try to use their money to control it, but that's a good thing about surfing, and I've said that elsewhere. The ocean doesn't care. You can have all the money in the world, you can have all the privilege in the world, you can have all the beauty in the world. If you don't know how to surf and respect the ocean, you're not going to do well. It doesn't make any it difference, does it? It doesn't make a difference. No, not one bit. Uh, and it is, I don't know, I mean, my experience is, you know, I, I walk through the world occupying this body, and it's probably different from your experience. I have found that at many breaks, once people figure out that you are competent, mm -hmm. they treat you with a certain measure of respect. They do. Uh, Agreed. And, yeah, and, and it's... It's interesting because there are, I, we were discussing the last few days I've surfed at Malibu, mm -hmm. and there's about to be this huge contest there, which means there are world-class longboarders there, most of whom look like they're between 20 and 30. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they're all, of course, beautiful and, and showing off for each other, as is their job. That's right. what they do. They're pro surfers. And for the most part, they, they ignore me. But they're also, really, when it came to a point where I was in a position where I couldn't be ignored. I was treated with respect every single time. That's and good. that doesn't always happen out in the world. Right. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't always happen at Malibu. So I'm So <laughs> I've heard. Shocked. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think the pros didn't have anything to prove to me. That's for sure. <laughs> One of the aspects of your uh, outlook on life that has really been intriguing to me as we've had conversations over the last couple of surf sessions is your orientation towards work. Mm -hmm. And I've said <laughs> elsewhere in the podcast um, that uh, I spent a lot of time in this little village in Costa Rica. And so I've, I've been lucky enough to befriend and be befriended by several Costa Ricans. And your attitude towards work comes closer to their attitude towards work than just about any American I have come across. Really? Yes, of, of our age. Right. And would you talk a little bit about your relationship with work? 
American culture says, if you don't work, you're lazy. Well, I have three degrees and I've had jobs, but sitting in an office, typing in front of a computer, for what? I mean, really, for what? To make money? And then to make money for what? And for whom? Mm, that's a good question. You know, I'm, the job I have now, I don't get paid much. My boss makes tons of money. So really, I'm helping him. I mean, I'm paying my bills, but it's really, my attitude is you're getting the best hours of my day to help you make money. And really, I'm not getting that much out of it. So I don't, I don't understand why work is that important. We should be living. I mean, yes, we live in the United States. We have bills. We want housing. So you have to work. But you don't have to have a career. I've never had a career. My kid is my career. Yeah, what a meaningful career that is. Yeah, that's the best uh, job ever. And what are your three degrees in, if you don't mind me asking? A BA in English, an MA in English, and a law degree. Okay. And I hate work. That's what's so funny. <laughs> but I didn't know it. At the time, when I was getting all the degrees, I thought I was setting myself up for a career. And then I got in the working world and hated it from day one. My Costa Rican friends who I know who, for example, are surf instructors, they don't hate their work at all. Mm -hmm. But they do it in order to support the important parts of their lives, which right. are their children and you know their families, their parents, they live close to their parents, as do you, you've yes. made that choice. And I, you know, there are other people, of course, who have grimmer jobs, who have different attitudes towards them. Uh, but we have, you know, there are, there are precious few jobs, I think, that don't keep people like you and me hemmed in physically to a point where we're just miserable. Right. Especially exactly. if you're a, a thinking sort of person, you get channeled into these jobs that involve sitting at a desk. Yes, that's awful. It's, it's just awful. Luckily, I have a standing desk now, and I work in front of a window. But if I didn't have those two, I would have quit. I've been there a year. That's almost a record for me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're writing professionally now, right? You're... I guess. Is it writing? I don't know what I do. I'm a, they call us technical writers. Okay. Yes. So, who cares? I mean, really, <laughs> when I meet people, I don't say to them, what do you do for a living? Right. I don't care what you do for a living. Yeah. It's not important. So, it irks me when people say, and what, do you, what is your job? Are you going to judge me based on my job? Who cares what I do? I go to a job to make money, to keep food in my kid's mouth and, you know, pay the electric bill and all that. But other than that... It, it so, doesn't define me. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. If you were going to answer that question in a way that, that felt right to you, what, what do you do? What would be the first few answers you would give? I always tell people, well, before I had this job, I'm a mom. That's yeah, my job. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I say, okay, I work for this company and write technical manuals for airline compliance. Who cares? And then I always say, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Do you ever say you're a surfer when people ask you, what do you do? No. In terms of a job, no. Okay, it's interesting because um, the one thing I've noticed about surfers, American surfers, is that if you ask them what they do, many of them will answer with their job. Mm -hmm. But if you pay any attention to their lives, mm -hmm. that's number two. <laughs> that's Unless true. they have a family, right? In which case yeah. the job may be number three. What they do first is sometimes family, sometimes what they do is surf. Mm -hmm. The job happens. It's not like we're not responsible. But if that surf forecast is good enough... 
That job's right. going to wait. Right? Yeah. And that's why I'm working part-time now. Because mm-hmm. I have an 88-year-old mom. I'm the only child. I have a 17-year-old kid. I'm a single parent. And I work full-time. I was not surfing. There was no time for surf. And I finally decided I can't, I can't do this. I need me time. So now I'm starting to surf again. I don't have benefits anymore. I don't care. I, I should care, but my health is basically good, so I don't care. And I'm going to get married in a year. I hate to, but you have to think that way. I'm an American. I'm going to get married in a year, and then I'll have my husband's insurance, so I can hang on for yes, a year. Yes, yes. Well, and, and it's interesting. Uh, insurance does not keep you healthy. No, not at all. But having a reasonable lifestyle that can maybe keep you healthy. Yeah. So what other lessons has the ocean or surfing taught you? That's a good question. I don't know. It's kind of what you were talking about, how people don't judge you as much. If you could surf, you're cool. So I've never had any kind of run-in with anyone based on characteristics that I can't change. So nobody's ever said, oh, you stupid woman or you stupid black person. No, I can surf and people are, hey, how are you? That's nice. That's very nice. Is that different from the rest of your life? I think with surfing, I can turn off my brain and that's why I like it. That's different from the rest of my life. One thing I tell people is what you don't understand about being black or being gay or being you know, Latino or Muslim is, you're always reminded of it. So if you're white, you can just go through life and be white. But if you're a different group, something is always reminding you. The president says something, or there's something on the news, or somebody goes to a mosque and shoots up the place. All those things remind you, oh, you're not like everybody else, even though you are. But when I surf, I can just sit there, and I know I'm black, and I can tell by some of the stairs, people are going, oh, look, a black woman. But I can just sit there and shut down for a bit. That's nice. It's a wonderful state, isn't yeah. it? There's a, a neuroscientist named Arn Dietrich who studies uh, a little bit of the neuroscience of flow. Mm-hmm. He's, he's looking into that, and he, he said something really interesting in a podcast interview that I heard him give, which is that states of flow and a lot of the states that we call higher consciousness mm-hmm. are actually reduced consciousness. They're states in which we can turn off the part of our brain that is always analyzing and always anticipating. That makes sense. Yeah, and, that and makes just perfect be. sense, yeah. Because when I first started surfing, I would overthink everything. Overthinking, overthinking, brain going, brain going. And as I got better, it got more and more quiet. And now I just shut down. Pretty much I just surf. That doesn't happen on land. I'm always thinking, overthinking, always going. It is a, I think, at this point in my life, and you know, I have, a, of course, like everybody, an evolving sense of, of what is working and what's not working in, in the world that I move through. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that tendency that you just described is one of the motivating missions of this podcast that I think so few American grown-ups have that regular kind of, of fully embodied immersive experience. Mm-hmm. And it's so important 
if you have access to it. And it doesn't have to be through surfing. Right. But it looks to me like surfers have a pretty good handle. Literally, they can grab a hold of it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe more easily than, than some other sorts of athletes or, or practitioners. But, um, but it really does feel so important, especially now as you know, computers and automation and robotics are taking over more and more of our physical existence to have some sense of connection and relationship and, and worth right. that comes through who we are as these human animals. As just so people. Important. Yes. Not connected to your career or your things. None of that matters. I should be a Buddhist. I'm not, but I should be a Buddhist. There, there are aspects of what you say that's, that strike me as very Buddhist, to the extent I understand what that means. Um, and, yeah. I have little attachment to things. Like when my board got stolen, I was mad because I liked the board bag. You know, I can get another surfboard. It's going to cost me something. But I was like, oh, I really like that board bag. But, of course, most people would say the important thing was the surfboard, but who cares? Whoever stole it, you better ride it well. There you go. Yeah, yes. I just feel like people are important. Things aren't important. We were, uh, we were talking on our way to San Onofre this morning, and you were talking about your, let's call it an ambivalent relationship with Southern California, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, where it is, it, I have to say, I've, I've been here working, but completely on my own schedule and able to control when I move around and still the traffic is untenable. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, so I can understand your impulse to want to move away from here when, when your life circumstances allow. And you said something on the way to San Onofre this morning, uh, which surprised me, but, but shouldn't given your non-attachment orientation, which is that when you move away, if it's, if it's necessary to give up surfing, you would, you would happily do that. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm trying to teach my son life is about balance. And as much as I would love to surf forever, I'm also 56, which means I'm getting older. And I've been athletic my whole life, so my body is now. I can start to feel it starting to fall apart. But I'm still in good shape. But I also have met the one. I mean, he is the one. I want to go where he wants to go, and neither one of us wants to be here. And I just want to be with him, and I want to get old with him and die with him, to be truthful. So if that means we don't live near the ocean and I give up surfing, that's fine. I've surfed. I've had a good time, but my life is going to move in a different direction, especially physically. I've had a knee replacement. I have an ankle with three screws and a plate. I'm getting older. So I don't even think I'm going to surf forever. So I'm ready to move on if I have to. And, and I find it fascinating that uh, your surfer journey began as your motherhood journey began. Mm -hmm. And your son is now 17. So you've done a really good job and he's probably going to, you know, move on in the next few years. And that these journeys might be paired. And, I didn't and even see that. I didn't think of that until maybe, you mentioned it. Yeah, maybe letting go of, of both at the same time. Even if you keep surfing and, and keep mothering, they'll be different than they were. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you love your kids, but once they hit this age, you're thinking, okay, <laughs> you can go do your thing now because you want your freedom. And I've been a single parent for the last, I don't know, four years, five years. And that's rough. It seems nearly impossible from yeah, my perspective. Well, he's a great kid, so it, it hasn't been that tough. But 
I think he wants his freedom. I want my freedom. When we love each other to death, but it's it's time. So, if there's a segment of my audience, which I think there there is, that feels like they would love to have some sort of disciplined play practice, because surfing mm-hmm. takes some discipline, um, but they they haven't for whatever reason they've they've allowed life or life has gotten in the way. What would you say to them? It's time to put yourself first. People don't do that. They think they're supposed to go get that career, go get that money. Go. That's not putting you first. That's putting what society tells you is supposed to come first. First. What do you want to do? Maybe you want to open a wood shop and just work on wood. And why don't you do that? I mean, I think part of it is Americans are fearful. We're all fearful. And there's something in me, I don't know what it is, that doesn't have a lot of fear. So I'll jump without a safety net. I'll quit a job. I don't care. Now, mind you, I'm never going to be homeless because my family has property. But I can be moneyless. But I just, we're not going to be here for that long. So you have to think about what it is you want out of your life. I don't have a bucket list. If there's something I want to do, I do it. And if I can't do it, then it's not on the list. That's part of that letting go of control, too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Um, yeah, it is fascinating sometimes to watch, especially multi-generation families where it looks like everyone is sacrificing for everyone else. The kids are suffering trying to please the parents, and the parents are suffering trying to take mm-hmm. care of the kids. And, and somehow we're, we're missing the whole point of of being alive and appreciative and grateful Mm -hmm. and you know let's face it that comes with some privilege now if you're an immigrant who has come here to make a better life for your kid or kids and you have to work 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 and your wife or your spouse or whoever has to work 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 then you really don't have the freedom like I think you do but maybe you can take a little bit of time for you you know I get it there is privilege Even though I'm black, I know I have privilege. I have middle-class privilege, and I don't deny that. So I can take these leaps of faith and know I'm not going to splat on the ground. Absolutely. (laughs) I'll survive. And I think other people need to know that, too. You'll survive. Yeah. You will. Believe it. Yes, it's um, yeah. It's a really good point. Uh, You know, depending on who you are and what your circumstances. there's, you know, sometimes fear is not baseless, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, and many times it, it is mm-hmm. that there, there's this, uh, and I don't know if it's cultivated in us or if we do it for, to ourselves, um, but we do really have this, it's never enough orientation, I think, as a culture. I guess. And, and for me, it's, I, I always feel like that's too much. I don't want all that. I don't want all those things, which is why I want to get in the class B with my man and drive off. We have this little box with four wheels and we have each other. What Done. else do you need? Good enough. So yep. beautiful. Oh my gosh, I hope that happens for you. I think it will. As I myself have moved out of, of working for someone else and working for myself over the last couple of years, 
I definitely have had a little bit of identity panic. Oh, of course. And yeah, it's been You're an really, American, of yes, course. <laughs> it's been really interesting to see that in myself because I don't think of myself. I've always been a little underemployed relative mm-hmm. to my peers, <laughs> if not a lot underemployed. And uh, But it really has been fascinating to watch this and and to see what I do when I'm not pushed with my time. You know, and, and I definitely rest more. I definitely take better care of myself. I right. eat better. I cook more. But I also have this amazing capacity. I mean, it's, talk about privilege. It's such a gift to follow an idea down, mm-hmm. follow it right down to the ground if that takes a week or a year. Mm-hmm. And and beautiful things are coming from that, like finding you and your blog. Thank you. You know, I never mm-hmm. would have had uh, this incredible experience of, of these days that we've spent together and, and learning from you and, and seeing the way you uh, interact with this environment and navigate all this nasty traffic. And, Ugh. <laughs> you know, and talk to you about your delightful son, uh, who, you know, who's growing up in a lot of ways is chronicled on that blog. I he mean, is. He's, he's not the center of it, but he's right there in the center of it, if he that is. makes sense. He's a little kid. Now he's grown. Now he's 6'1". Six 6'1", one. Six yes. one, 120 pounds, string bean, <laughs> hair on his face. But he's a great kid. I'm very proud of him. And he also writes, is that correct? He, he, does, he to wants be a to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I spend all my money at Barnes & Noble. Either I spend all my money on food, even though he weighs 120 pounds, or taking him to Barnes & Noble to buy more books. And how do you say no? I want to go to Barnes & Noble and buy some books. Okay. All right. Stomach food or brain food for yeah. that growing man. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. So what else have you learned in your life as a surfer or as your life as a surfer has has interwoven with your life as a mother or a daughter what have you learned from surfing that you that you could share with the audience what haven't i learned from surfing that's really what i'm thinking what haven't i learned i don't know my life changed quite a bit because of surfing because of the blog i tend to be as i've told you a lone wolf. I tend to be a homebody, but surfing kind of took me out of my shell and got me some attention that I hadn't expected. So, I don't know. Surfing has changed me. It's made me a little more open to to being out in public, I guess. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. To some extent, you are a little bit of a public figure in the Southern California surfing scene. I, I think was. I don't know if I still am, but I used to be, yeah. But now we have a generational shift, so younger people don't know who I am. They just know, oh, there's that black woman who surfs. But older people know me from the blog or just know me because there weren't that many other black women serving. There was me. There was Andrea. That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) But now it's changing. It's changing for the better? For the better. For the better. I'm seeing a lot more black people on social media who surf and people in the water. Now I can go to a beach and go, oh, there's a person, there's a person. Do you feel, I, I, I may be projecting here, okay. but do you feel like you might in some way have played a part in that cultural shift? No, it feels, I don't. It feels to me like you were a leader. And, I, I don't think no. I was, okay. no, because there was always a black surfing association. Okay. And that was, that predated me. So, yeah, I don't think I had anything to do with it. I think I was the one who was vocal and just said, hey, we're out here. But I don't think I caused anything. 
I was walking, uh, I have a, a dear friend who was down visiting me at my house at the coast um, in North Carolina, and we were walking across the boardwalk to access the beach. Mm -hmm. And I didn't notice it, but there was apparently this little girl, six or seven years old, and my friend said she saw that surfboard and she watched you walk a hundred yards towards her and then stopped and turned around and watched you walk away. Wow. And I wonder, you know, if that interaction right there with this older woman carrying a surfboard changed that girl's life. I like bet it suddenly did. she sees a possibility. I bet it and did. And so I bet that happens all the time with you and you just don't don't pay any attention to it because you're looking at the ocean. Right. <laughs> I know it's happened a few times where I've seen black people just stop and look. You surf. Yeah, I surf. And the shock, shock and awe. And maybe it or inspired women. some people, women. Yeah. yeah. But then again, here I go. If they have straightened hair, they're not going to go get in the ocean. Right. So we need to get black women to let go of the hair. I've said to people, if black women stop worrying about their hair, you're going to see some surfing. You will see black women in the water. Oh, that's so interesting. It's all about the hair. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think your hair is fabulous. Thank you. As so I'm... do I. Good. <laughs> My dreadlocks. <laughs> they are wonderful, and we'll be sure to post a picture of, of uh, <laughs> you and your fabulous dreadlocks on the blog. Is there anything else that you would like to say to an audience, I would imagine primarily of non-surfers, um, that you've learned in this long, delicious chapter of surfing? I would say stop taking work so seriously. What are you working for? I mean, I know what you're working for, to get the house and the cars and the, but what are you doing to feed your soul? It's not your job. So you need to figure out what it is. The end. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate your time and especially appreciate the shared waves. So much fun. That was fun. So good. You should have caught that last wave with me though. If you enjoyed this interview, please consider sharing it with a friend. Like many people, I'm in a period of intense learning and recalibrating my priorities around new ways of seeing. To some white people I know, this period is a little overwhelming. To me, it's a relief. It feels like we are finally willing to think together about dissolving the artificial barriers of race that have been reinforced for far too long, especially near the water. Racism and white supremacy in our hearts and institutions brutalizes our love and our capacity for connection, even when there are no batons or guns anywhere in sight, even when we are at play on a beach waiting for the next beautiful wave. To find links to ways to make a contribution of your energy or money to the crucial efforts to address racial disparities in comfort and safety near and on the water, visit wavestowisdom.com slash surfsista. That's wavestowisdom.com slash S-U-R-F-S-I-S-T-A.